another bucket list item off the list. Yes. I'm George Techmanchev here with Steve the Big Cat Anderson, winner of Reading 2017. Congratulations, buddy. Thank you. So, um, it's, I remember years ago you telling me, or, you know, what seems like years ago, probably last year, maybe the year before, that this was one of your bucket list items. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yep. This one, World what, Field. What was it that Vegas. made Reading so meaningful to guys like you and, and Zach Kurtzals and some of the other shooters that we know? Um, well, I think growing up on this side of the country, Reading is, you know, a, a major event that's close by and, um, for me personally, it was the first real target event I ever went to, like a large one, you know? So I went in 2010 and really had no idea what I was in for. And I really enjoyed it then. And, uh, and it just took seven years for you to win the thing. Yeah. Which if you so, think about it is actually pretty remarkable. Yeah. Cause you consider 2,500 shooters turned out for Reading this year. I understand perhaps uh, about just shy of 1700. Oh, 1700. Yeah. Okay. And that's partly because they're having to cap participation because of the fact that otherwise it'll take up to an hour to shoot, you know. Each star. Yeah, each star. It, yeah exactly. The course is... Uh, Super popular. Yeah, it's a really popular tournament. You only have 70 targets. So really you have 70 targets, but 140 groups. Uh, groups split into two. Targets split into two groups. So. so as we record this yesterday, we put out a call for questions. And of course, some of those questions involve... Um, you know, what you had to do to, to win Reading. But let me ask you a couple uh, off the top of my head. What was your biggest challenge besides, you know, just the pressure of a tournament like that that you care about? I understand it was pretty windy. Yeah, it was great the first day. Conditions were straight up, you know. So got a good score the first day. It was one down. Um, second day in the wind, managed it really well, finished one down. Third day was supposed to be the worst wind, and that kind of uh, bummed me out a little bit because I felt like I was in position. If it was uh, if it was dead calm out there, I was in a good position on the with where I was starting and finishing on the course to probably clean that day and wrap it up and not have to uh, go to a shoot off or anything like that. Mm-hmm. You know, I felt I felt like my chances were hindered by a windy day. And, um, just because you, you don't know what can happen. I mean, you can go, you can go break every shot perfectly, hold the dot right where you want it. And sometimes it just doesn't play in the wind. So, um, that was a little concerning, but really all you can do is go and make the best shots you can. All right. Let's back up just a skosh here for, you know, we've got a lot of worldwide listeners that don't know what this tournament is. The Reading Trail Shoot used to be the Western Trail Shoot. It's actually two tournaments in one now. It's the NFAA National 3D. Right. Correct me if I go off the rails here. And it's also still the Western Trail Shoot. Of the two, the one with the most prestige is the Reading Trail Shoot, the Western Trail Shoot. Yes. And that's the hardest one arguably to win. Yeah. I mean, they're, well, they're contested. I mean, it's all in one. It's all in one, but yeah. but that's the one that gets the people's attention um, in this in this particular group of shooters, um, which is an awful lot of shooters in the United States that aspire to shoot this tournament. And um, you know, this is as big to some people as Vegas. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, the, a lot of the West Coasters and people in warm weather environments and stuff like that, they don't shoot a lot of indoor. Right. So and over, it's their first, it's their first real big outdoor tournament. Yeah. For some. Right. It's the only outdoor tournament. A lot of people shoot. Yep. Because it's within driving distance of San Francisco and 
San Jose and that huge population, Sacramento. Yeah. Uh, driving distance of Salt Lake City, driving distance of Southern California. Well, a lot of them really like field archery. They don't like outdoor target. So and yet, it, it's it's a field archery tournament, despite but, saying Mark 3D. But I would say it's a target tournament as well. Yeah, it very much is. You got an orange dot to aim at. Yeah, it, yeah, it's more like field distance. archery. And you know the distance. So yep. you got to use field techniques, but it's also got some target feel to it in terms of you know how far it is and all that. So yeah, it's 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 NFAA field archery in, in a lot of ways. Uh-huh. With all sorts, all manner of different targets to shoot at. Yeah, there's you got a uh, favorite? all sorts of stuff, four yards to 101 yards, everything in between. And you, know, you can't sleep on any of them because... There's uh there's basically a, a max distance for each dot size, and you get out along max distance, and you know that's uh, 20 yards on the the uh, small dot, and then I think like 32 yards on the next size up, and those those get pretty difficult. Those aren't easy to hit, and especially you put them on an angle and add some wind to the mix, and things get challenging. One of the things we had talked about in a previous podcast, and forgive me, folks, I don't remember which one was exactly what some of your uh, equipment considerations were going to be for this event. Can you talk us through briefly what you uh, what you shot and why you picked it? Yeah, so I shot the same silver bow I've been shooting all year with. Um, at Dakota Classic, I, I had a new bow that I was trying to get up and running. And, Specifically, uh, it's a Hoyt Prevail model, is that yep, right? Yep, Hoyt Prevail 40. Which cams have you got on there? The SVX, so... Um, so I, I shot the silver one all year, and I tried to get a blue one going and yanked in. It just didn't quite have the same feel. Um, it was a little heavier in poundage, so I didn't really have time to get it up and running. So I just took my a different stabilization setup and bolted it onto the silver bow and went from there. So normally I use 33-inch Z-Flex on the front, 15-inch Z-Flex on the back with about 18 ounces on the front and about 24 on the back. And then for the, and then the sidebars kicked out pretty far. And so that's your normal, that's setup. a normal target setup, but yep. you made some adjustments on this one. Yeah. If you're shooting heels and stuff like that, I like to have a little more neutral setup, meaning it doesn't want to tip the top cam one direction. Uh, so I went to, a, I left the same 33 inch Z flex front, 12 inch Z flex side, but I went to about 15 and, 25 15 ounces on the front 25 on the back so it gave me a very similar um you know ratio front to back or i'm not gonna say the ratio is the same because it's not but the way it felt in the hand was was similar at least how it tipped front to back but bringing that sidebar in although i went shorter on the bar bringing it closer kind of gives you more effective length um so that helped a little bit as well and then just had to get accustomed to a bow that didn't want to lean to the left. So it's more neutral in its, uh, you know, what would you call it? X axis or Y axis hold. Um, and that was, that was the only real major changes. Other than that, I go from, I guess I'd call that roll. Yeah. Roll. It's fine. Uh, I went from a, just a black dot to a new lens from feather vision. That's actually a permanent dot. So it's, you know, a 50, Does it ground into the lens or yeah, something? Yeah, it's 50 thousandths etched, and then it has a 20 thousandths hole drilled through that, and I ran a fiber into that. So it's black with a, a green fiber in the middle. That's giving you a decent contrast with the uh, the orange dot, I presume. Yeah, and, and more importantly, from one lighting condition to another. Green is the easiest color for the human eye to pick up in that regard. And um, 
yeah, you may, you may be shooting a target that's in the dark and you're standing in the sun or vice versa or dark to dark or bright to bright. So one of those two reticle colors, either the black or the green is going to give me something to aim with. So you're never stuck with an indeterminate reticle. You can always tell right. the relationship. Yeah. There. Nothing's ever washing out. And I, I think that was critical because you get on some of these small dot targets that are dark and you get them in the shade and then the dot, you know, you have a black dot. You almost can't tell where your dot's at in relation to the target, in relation to the dot. So kind of creates a little. So that's an AAE product now? Uh, yeah, AAE. If, if people want more info, they can Vision. go to the AAE website and find that? Yeah, or just Google Feather Vision or check. The, the best place to look at that one right now is just on uh, Feather Vision's Facebook page. Okay. All right. For those people who use Facebook. Any other thoughts? Um, any advice for somebody who wants to try to follow in the footsteps of Steve Anderson on this one? Uh, equipment advice. Um, I mean, make sure you've got a – one thing I, I really stress is making sure your sight is leveled. Now, you can take a Hamsky leveling device and go and level it all day and have it by you know their standards perfect. And that's what I did. And then – Thursday, the day before the shoot started, I was heading to the right. All my long shots were going right. And I figured out it was just a second axis issue that although it showed level on the device, I still needed to shoot it in. So I made, I just unbolted it right there on the course, made a little adjustment, hoped it was near <laughs> what I needed and uh, shot a couple marks. I had to redo some marks because, you know, as I, I, I believe I'd moved it up slightly or down. I don't remember, but, um, it changed. I moved it up because it changed the way I had to, uh, side in. So that, I think that's important. You know, if you're shooting heels and, or even multiple distances, shoot your setup in level it first, try to get a, a good center shot with a French tune. And then if you're still having issues with, uh, arrows wanting to move one way or the other, you may have to go check that second axis, assuming first axis is correct. How many targets are there in this tournament? There's 70. So you go through 70 targets. Two arrows each. Two arrows each. So that's a considerable, you know, that's a pretty good field shoot. Yeah. And then a, you get to the end and you got two other guys tied with you. Again. Again. Yeah. One I, of whom I, is, yeah. one of whom is Stefan. We're developing a, a little budding rivalry here. I could see that. Yeah. I, um, I would say you are you're becoming his bête noir, his uh, his black beast, his <laughs> his bugbear. Uh, but uh, fortunately, you guys actually get along, so it's not that. Yeah. Bad. But the reality is, um, you've beaten him twice now in head-to-head -head competition, back to back. Uh, it's gotta it's gotta be something that's probably on both your minds next time you come up against each other. So it'll be interesting to see how that goes. Yeah, just for those um, of us who like to watch this kind of thing, right? And it, and we, he and I talked about it, you know, immediately before our shoot off, and we we think it's cool too. Like and here we are again. Yeah, well, but see, archery needs this. We have to have, and we, we'll call it a rivalry. But I, I know you guys get along great. But we've got to have this kind of thing going on for people to retain interest. I think. Yeah, there's got to be the storylines and the characters, right? You and can't so, just have oh these two are shooting off because it's always somebody shooting off, yeah. right? Yeah. Seems so who knows? I mean, you could very well find yourselves in a similar position next week in China. Yeah. Right. Or or here in Salt Lake City the week after that one. So. Right. Yeah. I mean, I mean it could happen, and and um, which is kind of you know jaw dropping that all this is coming up so quickly. You got Turkey in between, of course. <laughs> but my goodness, there is a lot happening. But um, y you know, you can you can go back, and a lot of people are going to remember 
Mikey and Stefan, last two standing in Vegas. You know, that's Absolutely. a great rivalry. Absolutely. As well. Yeah, good one. Um, you know, do you remember <laughs> who who was uh shooting off against Sergio, you know? I, I I'm sorry to say that even though I was the announcer for the event, no, I don't remember yeah, it, because people remember the winner. Yeah, people remember the winner and But they also and, remember a good rivalry. I remember yeah. Ida Ramon versus Kibo Bay in London. Right. And I remember other rivalries of that kind. I, I'll tell you what I remember. Something that by no means would you normally remember, which is the, I think it was 116th or 18th shoot-off between Taylor Worth and Brady Ellison. Yeah. They came up against each other two, three times, and and Taylor prevailed each time. Yeah, and so then, and then similar, I think right? Brady finally got him at a got him good, indoor yeah. worlds. Yeah. Got him very, very um, decisively. Yeah, and it, and it but that stuff that even I, yeah, I remember that, like, Taylor and Brady. And I guarantee you both of those guys remember it too. (laughs) Right. And this is the stuff, you know, that good stories are made from. It's what keeps people interested. Yeah, you got to have that. I mean, you can't just put competitor A against competitor B because it's always going to be A against B. And and There's always someone who wins and someone who's second. And it's even better if they're not great friends, like back in the 70s and 80s, Daryl Pace and Rick McKinney. Yeah, we don't have many of, of those anymore. That was the you, classic you rivalry in archery. You, you get know. a few where you go, ah, these these guys really want to beat each other. Yeah, you know? that was definitely personal as well as professional. They were they were courteous. They were very professional. Uh, they wouldn't have had a beer together afterward. No. So they'd probably talk a little smack on each other afterwards. Perhaps. All right. So uh, awesome performance again. Uh, another po- that's seven podiums in a row for you. Yeah. And that one was definitely lucky number seven. Uh huh. So, well, you make your own luck. Any any any, any uh, further thoughts before we move on? Um, I, I have a great quote here on our Facebook from a certain Mike Anderson, who could oh. be related to Steve Anderson, and he wanted to know: Did you turn to the crowd before the arrow hit? Yes, I did. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll bet that's no surprise to uh, to your brother. I mean, it was well. My Mike is my dad. Oh, your dad. Yep. There you go. Um. You know, it wasn't necessarily because I was, you know, saying, saying there you go. You know, I, I kind of, the crowd will let you know what happened. And <laughs> I'm just thinking if it was Braden Galantine. <laughs> I mean, it'll take, a, yeah, it'll take a second for that arrow to get there. So I cut it loose and I started to turn and kind of gauge their reaction. I mean, that this happened last year when I was shooting off for first and I heard, you know, I shot my arrow last, last year and as soon as I shot it, you know, someone goes, yeah. And I thought it was for me, you know, but they were standing next to Henry Bass, who was the one who beat me. And they were saying, yeah, for Henry. So you want to wait just that brief second to confirm. Yeah. Don't, don't do the fist pump when you just lost. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, just kind of wanted to see what the crowd was going to do and see what, see the reaction. And well, there's a lot of nice comments on our Facebook page about your victory. Um, some of them, I heard his practice schedule is arduous, said Seth Debom. <laughs> so, of course, we let Seth know that you'd shot at least three arrows before you went out there. Yeah, I actually, you know, I got a, a good day of practice in on Tuesday. And then Wednesday, I worked on siding in, getting a good tape. And then Thursday, I, I legitimately shot, you know, practice round in the Pro-Am. And then I shot it again. Our good friend Josh Luthi, formerly from Hoyt. Uh, it's crazy how he can be riding the elk and his feet still almost touch the ground. This is true. <laughs> so riding the elk, if you don't know what that is, go to the Easton Target Archery Facebook page and you'll see the uh, what's become the tradition for Redding, which the champion gets on this gigantic, I mean, it's a pretty ginormous 3D target of an elk. 
Yeah. And, and you make it look like, um, well, not a, not such a big animal. Uh, as Traven Eiler says, it's funny seeing him up on the elk. His feet almost reached the ground. <laughs> that elk got pounced on by a big cat, said Justin Mays. So some nice comments there. You got yeah. a pretty good fan club up there, Steve, and congratulations on yet another big win. Thank you. Um, next up, of course, is going to be Shanghai, and you've got uh, not a whole lot of time to prepare for that. You're flying out just a couple of days from now. Yeah, the beautiful thing about 50 meters is it's really easy to prepare for. Yeah. Side in and go but i mean I, honestly i feel like i could probably not touch my bow the rest of the week and provided i can get some good shooting in you know there's not weather or rain on uh see i arrived sunday so as long as there's not problems on monday which is unofficial practice i could get some good practice in then tuesday official practice by wednesday you know i should be strong enough to be ready to rock the problem is i believe there's uh you know some what do you call it? Like period periodical training and blah, blah, blah. And yeah, that what they do is I, yeah. they break up the schedule. Cause there's not really enough room for everybody to train at the same time. So you don't get yeah. to pick when you shoot. Yeah. They're going to tell you when exactly. So I will practice this week. Yes. But well, at least you know, three arrows. Yeah. But the beauty is it's, it's legitimately just practice. There's no equipment preparation needed for 50 meters, which is, I mean, I'll, I'll say, I think Reading is the best tournament we shoot all year. Well, now let me ask you this: Are you going to go back to your normal target? Yeah, I am. Um, uh, the stabilizer it. setup. Yep, I will. So you go back to the fifteen-inch rod. Yep. Kicked out a little further. Just a little better in the wind. And it's going to have a little bit of left bias. Right. Okay. But, but other than that, you know, the rest of it's working. Yeah, and you know, same I was, arrows. I was X10 just saying, yeah, X ten three twenty five fives and same as always. same as the arrows that Mauro Nespoli just set a new European record with. Yeah, what touch on out that. of his recurve bow. Tied the world record with the second half in crappy weather. Yeah, three fifty three. Really amazing shooting. Really good shooting. But uh, not to digress. Um, although that's a pretty good digression. We'll talk about that a little more later. Yeah. Um, basically, the proving ground for you was Reading, and now you can go to Shanghai, pretty much confident, ready to go. Yeah, I mean Shanghai is more of a test of the shooter themselves. You don't have to have really well tuned equipment. You just have to sight in. Well, one there, distance. there will be some good shooters there. My understanding is Korea is sending a team, and they're they're in pretty good shape on the compound side right now. So they're just off their trials. Very nice. So that should be interesting to see how that goes. Always fun when they're there. Did I ever tell you the story about when we beat them in Antalya as a team? Well, go ahead. Every point we went up, Braden Galantine, who was coaching, stole an umbrella from <laughs> from their group. <laughs> they didn't even notice. And at the end, he handed them six umbrellas. He said, oh, I took all these from you guys. You know, they were laughing. They thought it was funny. At least they have a sense of humor. Yeah. It, it, I don't know why it was. I, that's what happens on a World Cup. You're there for a week, and pretty soon things like that are really funny to you. Mm-hmm. I'll point out that, by the way, that the, you know, the Korean team, whether a compound or recurve in general, they've gotten a lot friendlier in the last five years or so. You know? They've yeah, I like loosened up guys. a little. They're like nice people. But they've gotten to be very more, much more expressive and less – Less regimented, I guess, than they used to be. It, but the compounds especially. I mean, they were really into it. Yeah. The the women's team, and this I'm assuming comes strictly from differences in coaching. The men's team is a lot looser than the women's team. The, the women's team all came the, from the recurve side originally. Well, I'm talking recurve. Oh, their, okay. their women's recurve team is pretty uh, regimented, as uh-huh, you would yeah. say, whereas the men's team is a little more laissez-faire. This has always been true. Okay. Which is why it took forever for the men to win a gold medal, you might argue. Maybe, yeah. <laughs> they're doing fine now. Yeah, well, now that they've got, you know, the four-minute mile under their belt, they're 
going to be unstoppable. Hey. But, uh, yeah. All we right. haven't talked about their team. Did we talk about their team? We talked about the fact that the Olympic champion didn't make the team. And they might be better. And that's scary if you think about it. They might be better. What's interesting year. is you got the, quote, old veterans, right? You've I'm got, actually going to say they are going to be better this year. Yeah. Well, I, I'll say this. I know for a fact that Ojin Hyuk is on a upward trajectory. He's got some stuff in his life sorted out really nicely, and, and I think he's feeling good and he's shooting well. Boy, it's amazing how humble he is, though. He's really humble about it. Im Dong Hyung, back again. The so-called blind archer, mm-hmm. which is not true, but it's <laughs> <laughs> what he's been known as since since wherever. Um, you know, he's he's uh, he's just he keeps coming back and and think about what that takes. How much effort it takes oh, to keep coming back to that to level. So, you have to be so good. Oh boy. And then Kim Woo Jin, yeah, seven hundred, yeah. And then the other guy is some guy who's never made a team, but he's, right. he's once held the seventy meter world record. Right. So you know, there's there's going to be some interesting stuff starting next week in Shanghai from Korea, and I think we'll continue to see it through the season. I don't know about the the, the new guy, per se, but I think both Kim and M, both all three, Kim, M, and O, and o will all shoot over 700 this year. I will not Given the take conditions. a bet on that. they got to have the conditions. If the conditions are good, I mean, they could do it in that stadium in Shanghai if the wind's not swirling around like it often does. It, yeah, if we had conditions like last year, I think they all three do it at the same time. Well, let's see what happens. All right, we'll take that uh, We'll take that prediction and we'll see how it goes. So Keep yeah, your yeah, keep yourself tuned to World Archery, I'm gonna pred- archery.tv. I'm going to call be a on. prediction. All right. World record falls at least twice this year. Okay. I'll, you know what? I have no doubt you're probably right. Maybe once will be Brady too. That would be nice. Have Let's a see it. have an American set a record, but uh, you know I wouldn't be surprised to see one out of Europe. No, I would not be surprised. Nope, Morrow or or Shiv. Yeah. Well, we need to jump onto these uh, questions. So we've got some great ones from both our podcast at EastonTP.com um, email address as well as Easton Target Archery on Facebook. And I'm just going to pick something at random here, which I think is interesting. It's this question from Ian Dahl, who has what is probably the best email address in the world. I'll show you in a second. Ian um, <laughs> at beware.dropbear. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, so Ian says he's wondering about the term inside out to describe an arrow entirely within a scoring zone. Wouldn't it be more accurate to describe this as outside in? To me, inside out implies the innermost uh, side of the arrow is outside the scoring zone. A miss. Whereas outside in would mean the outermost side is inside the scoring zone. Who coined the term inside out for this purpose? And were they being ironic? This guy ain't wrong. Well, it's Dr. Ian Dahl. So he he's obviously not, been thinking about this. He is this. not wrong. He is probably correct. So Ian, Dr. Dahl, I think. <laughs> Beware. That, is that not the fair. best email address in history? Dude, oh, that man. is a great email address. All righty. Uh, let's see. Oh, here's another one. Simon Burke. <clears throat> Simon says that he wanted to write in quickly and add to the valuable discussion on reviews. You'll recall the last podcast we were ranting a little bit about reviews and the value of Amazon reviews and two-star reviews not existing, that kind of thing. So Simon's addressing that. He says he has an observation that he's made over the last few months. Quote, be glad that Easton Technical Products doesn't make anything specifically for infants 
My wife and I are expecting our first child this summer and have been trying to make informed decisions on our major purchases. Upon reading reviews of many products, hormonal exhausted underrested mothers quickly take to the internet, giving scathing reviews to any product that does not 100% meet their expectations. Right, scathing one-star reviews. So long as you stay out of that market, we're, we're good, he says. So that's, thanks for that observation. All right, back to serious stuff. Um, question from Jonathan West. He's going to buy a new Hoyt Prevail, and he's narrowed it down to two options. His draw length is 29 inches bang on. He'll be going with 50-pound limbs. He's looking at a Prevail 40 and a 37 with the mm-hmm. SVX cam. 40 has him on the short end of the base cam. The 37 has him on the long end of the base cam. He'd like your thoughts on each from a draw cycle feel, true draw length, actual let off, speed, and efficiency. Hmm. Well, true draw length is not going to be more than a quarter inches long of what's stated. Uh, provided you have string cable lengths to spec. Um, draw cycle feel, some people will argue this. They'll say the the long end of a cam is a little bit harsher than the short end, but you're talking the long end of a small cam versus the short end of a larger cam. Is that what I heard? I think there? so, yeah. And I th- you know what I'm hearing here is an argument that I've heard before, and I've actually heard people make convincing arguments for both. Yep. I have heard it, right? Because one of them is, well, the bigger cam's got more mass and therefore it's slightly less efficient. You're better off maxing out the performance using the smaller cam. Okay, maybe. Not necessarily, though. Right. I, I'll always take the bigger cam when I get the choice. Uh, bigger cams tend to tune easier from what I have seen. And there's less chance of having uh, excessive cam lean on the bottom where it's not adjustable. So the larger cams to me also seem a lot smoother in the draw cycle and have much, you can do a lot more with the feel on that cam. So go for the big option perhaps? That's what I would do. I would go with whichever one has the larger cam. Now, if you're stuck and they're both the same base cam, one is just long and one is short, which is possible, um, long end of the cam is going to give you a little better performance, which if that's the case, it's the 37. If it's me and I'm him, I'm probably going with the 37 either way. There's one other consideration, I suppose, and that is, you know, facial structure, how long it is from your eye to your anchor and yeah. where your peep is. If you shoot a really high peep, something like that. Yeah. Um, so, yeah so it might be a good idea to maybe pay some attention there, too. Yeah. To see have, which one of those two fits you better. Yep. Because the longer bow will have a shallower angle on the string. Correct. If you have a peep to arrow measurement at full draw of, you know, more than four inches, you, you probably want to look at the, uh, the 40. Next question comes from Daniel Coe on our Facebook, um, Eastern Target Archery. Daniel says he's thinking of getting some X-23s for the indoor season. I know it's early, he says. Spines have me confused. They seem to be classed as X-7 on the spine chart, which, if any, of the X-23 spines would suit me with my 29-inch draw and 42-pound limbs. And he's shooting a recurve with fingers. Uh, I I asked a follow-up question just to clarify that. He's shooting 42 pounds on his fingers. So um, you're going to have to load it up with point weight to make that to make that work, and you're going to want to run that arrow a little long. But uh, your 2312 will work if you load it up with point weight. So hopefully that'll that'll solve that for you. Daniel Foley is looking for some tips for torque tuning. Steve, from what I have gathered, is a bit of an expert on the matter and seems to be doing something right lately. I have two questions. So his first question, the first question from Daniel here is. What are the variables that affect torque tuning and should be accounted for? For example, rest, sight position, etc. 
So add to that arrow length, point weight, and how you grip the bow. So how complicated does this need to be? It's really not. Um, run the rest as far forward as possible. Torque it to one side. See where it hits. Do it at 20 yards on a, you know, indoor face. Something to aim at, yeah. Yeah. Do the same thing with the arrow rest in its furthest back position. See if it improves or gets worse. And then you probably will find one of the two is drastically better. And right. if not, you might be not, might need to be somewhere in the middle. So. And the second uh, question seems to be, what is your process of torque tuning a new compound? Uh, just as I described. Just what you right just there. described. Yep. Daniel's a, a good buddy of mine okay. from Ireland. Oh. His mom makes a mean breakfast. Nice to know. Yep. So Next time you find yourself with your golf bag in Ireland, you'll, you'll drop in. It. Yeah. Why not? Okay. Michael uh, Talisfrud. How about coaching and training? I know you guys have touched on this before, but just going out and shooting, I feel, only does so much good. What's your opinion between trying to find a coach around the area or going online with a Dudley, uh, John Dudley, or George Riles? Is there any good routine or specific part of the shot to practice? Um, I'll, I'll jump on this just a little bit, and I'd like your thoughts too, Steve. And I, I would tell Michael, local probably is better if you can get somebody that knows what they're doing you're always going to be better off finding somebody who you can contact when you need to. Uh, certainly, getting a Dudley or a Riles to coach you is a not just a privilege, but also a very useful thing. But I'd say once you've gotten to a certain level, I don't know if you want to take advantage of that potentiality for, uh, you know, I don't know what level you're at. But I would say that find somebody local to start with if you can. Mm-hmm. And, and I would say there's different... Uh different coaches will be better for you at different stages. So, you know, a a local person, they don't have to be a great shooter. There's a lot of, lot of guys. I mean, even coming out of my home club, you know, these guys weren't top level pros. They were very good shooters and get you very far along. Yeah. And they had, they had pretty good idea of, of, you know, how things worked. And I, I, you know, would get ideas and, and, uh, tips would get bounced around you know and And by the way i'll point out that you know in our sport at least um it's good to have a coach that's gone through certification or whatever it's not necessary though there's plenty of people out there who haven't gone through the process of becoming a certified coach in any of the systems out there um you know michael forgive me for presuming but you sound like maybe you're from outside the u.s in the u.s we have a coaching certification system I know plenty of people who haven't gone through that that I would go to for coaching long before I'd go to somebody who'd gone to a level four. Right. You know. Agreed. And the other thing I would say is look for someone who's out trying, like legitimately trying to further themselves in archery because there's a lot of guys who are happy to jump on the internet and claim to be an expert and talk the talk. And very few are out there actually trying to walk the walk. So find someone. There, there's someone local to you, I almost guarantee, who – can help you pick up some techniques, pick up some thought processes and work with you on different things. Now I'll say the only thing that I think really matters is learning to execute the release aiming and all that will get better. And that's pretty, I mean, we're as humans, we've always learned to aim in some regard, right? Um, so the shot process that will, <clears throat> the the shot execution process as that gets better magically your aim gets better and your groups and the target get a lot better so work on that 
and make that your focus. And then you'll, you'll see drastic improvement. And then as you get there, maybe that becomes the time for consulting with somebody of the caliber of right. a John Dudley or a George Riles of the fourth or exactly. whoever. Yep. All right. So hopefully that helps you out, Michael. Congratulations, Big Cat, from Brian Thacker. Quick question. I've seen where some shooters adjust their peep according to the shoot long distance that particular event could present. Do you subscribe to this theory, and exactly how would one go about doing this, if so? So there's always – I mean, anytime you move your peep up and down, your sight's going to have to move up and down for a given range And as your well. anchor. Yeah. So there's always kind of a happy medium where – you are going to have your most comfortable head position at the distance you're most likely to shoot. So for me, 50 meters is a great, I mean, that's what I'm shooting the most of the time outdoors. And at Reading, that's actually a great place to place your peep as well. People say, how do you know what 50 meters is? And it's like, well, you're going to have a, a range on your side of no more than let's say 10 numbers plus minus five, where you get the peep in a comfortable position and your site's going to be somewhere within those numbers. So you can kind of get it in the ballpark and then adjust as necessary up or down with the peep. And you'll know right away because you'll see yourself either falling out or climbing up above the peep throughout the shot process. So you want to be in a position where as you are executing a shot, you're not having to worry about where the peep is going in relation to the site. So yeah, I subscribe to the theory. Um, outdoors, it's I get it comfortable at 50 meters indoors, obviously comfortable at 20 meters, 20 yards. I've known some shooters who had to do this because of uh, physical constraints, uh, specifically a Paralympian that I've worked with. Um, I will say that, you know, once you are used to it, you know what you're doing and you're sure that you have the right sight settings, that's important. Um, then it, it works just as well as any other technique. Uh, Douglas Jardine. Hi guys. A couple of questions. A couple of episodes ago, you said people were wrong to think that you can shoot the spine out of an aluminum core arrow. If so, where does this belief come from? As I've heard it repeated a lot. Thanks, Douglas. Um, it's been repeated by people who don't understand material science <laughs> and who have read an thing. article that was written by a specific person who doesn't need to be named and uh, bought what he was selling in that article. He was trying to sell. That's that's what it comes down to, Doug. Sorry about this. You don't, um, you don't shoot the spine out of an aluminum arrow. You may bend it. You may cause it to oval, which would change its stiffness, but you don't, you can't change the fundamental stiffness of a material. That's a, that's one of the fundamentals of what makes the material what it is. So there you go. Hopefully that'll, hopefully that'll solve your question there. Uh, Mike Genot, getting vertical shaped groups at long distance at 60 yards plus, he says they're uh, two inches wide and six to eight inches tall. Is this a tuning issue or me getting lazy on my shot and dropping? Well, we can guess. We don't think it's a yeah. people alignment issue as, as you bring up because that would probably give you some lefts and rights. But there's also a vertical aspect to aligning your peep, isn't there? Yeah. I mean, you could easily drop out the peep one way or another and miss a little high or low. But my guess here, first he says he's using a AAE Freak Show rest with an 8,000s blade. Now, depending on if he's using the long or short, that makes a difference as well. They have long or short blades. If it were I, a long blade, that probably is a little soft. flexible yeah. for that 58-pound, 29 and a quarter, X10-420. Yeah. X10-420. There's no such thing. Well, Pro Tour He probably means a, four, what he means a Pro Tour 420. Yep. So, <clears throat> so I would, I would uh, get rid of the 8-thou blade and go to go a to 10, 12, 10, 10 first. 10. And if that fixes it, Mike, then you know you're you're yeah. you're – you're on the right path. The it other might not thing, be the right perfect blade, but it'll be closer. The other thing I would look at is 
uh, cam timing and creep tuning. So yeah, he didn't mention. Oh yeah, he's shooting a Podium X. Yep. So a uh, twist in the bus cable, one way or another, can really affect that as that well. That little. Yep. Mm-hmm. Okay. So Mike, hopefully that'll help you out. Malcolm Reese says, as we head into the outdoor season and all it brings weather-wise, I'm wondering what our thoughts are on wind bars. And congratulations, Steve, on some great shooting. So, you know, we make the Contour series of stabilizers, which are expressly designed to help in the wind. Um, Steve shot the Z-Flex, which is not expressly designed to help in the wind, and won in windy conditions. So, you know, a lot depends on the shooter, their feel, and what their preferences are. But generally speaking, he may be talking about he could also be talking about shortened. Yeah, I think he's looking for a shortened bar, like yeah. a twenty-inch or twenty-four-inch front bar. Yeah. So I, I've never done it. Um, seen guys do it, and I think in a gale force wind, it. I haven't would, seen target guys do it. I, I've seen Jesse Broadwater do it, and that's the only one really. Um, I think it would help. I mean, obviously, yeah, you're removing a lot of that mass away from your Trouble hand. Is if it's that windy, Steve, it's pushing you too. Even you, right? Right. Yeah, so, it's hard to aim regardless. Yeah, so you know it's going to push you around. It's going to push your arm around. It's going to push you around. The question is, is it helping you from the standpoint of maybe felt torque in the bow while yep. the wind is blowing? And I think the answer on that is yeah. Yeah, it, it keeps the grip from turning as bad in your hand. Okay. So, it. I mean, at that point, I hate shooting anyways. You know, if it's that windy, I, I really don't want to be there. I've probably, probably lost a bit of my desire. So... <laughs> I'm just going to try to get through the round. Well, nobody wants to be miserable. Yeah. But it, it would work. I mean, if you're if you're in a con, uh, just a nasty condition like that, but um you know, try working your your weight up a little bit on uh, just a standard front bar if you can on your regular length and watch how big of a difference that'll make. Chad Simpson says he's a 3D shooter but would love to set up his backup bow to shoot field. He'd like to know what suggestions and changes we'd make on a budget of around $250. So I'm not sure if he's talking bow or arrows. Well, let's just go with what he needs to do money-wise on his bow to shoot field. I'm going to say make sure that you've got you know, a, a sight that's repeatable and adjustable. Mm-hmm. I'm going to presume probably you've got that already on a 3D bow. Yeah. So what else is there? Maybe really good cables and strings and... And maybe make sure your arrow rest is up to snuff. Yeah, and I think he might be looking to to buy a bow, you know, at two fifty. Well, he's talking about using his backup bow for this, though. I don't know. I don't know either. Maybe we'll if get you had fifty dollars to spend, what are you gonna what's what's his best spent on? I guess is his question. How about for a nice field? quiver? Because you three D guys, you generally don't use quivers, right? You got the chair <laughs> with the tube on it. That's true. You're gonna well, need a quiver, Chad. Field is is uh, another sport where they like to walk around with a with a with a uh, chair, but I'm more into the quiver. Yeah. So quiver is one. I'm not a chair carrier. I, I would. You, you've got to take four arrows with you. Sometimes you end up walking up into a like an elevated shooting position. May not be able to get the chair up there. I don't. I don't want to have to take forget arrows or whatever. I just want them on my hip. All right. I don't know, Chad. But, yeah. I, maybe I'd we'll say- we'll reach out and get some clarification yeah maybe send us a, a little update on what it is exactly that you've got on the backup bow that you might think requires an upgrade um otherwise i'd spend that 250 dollars on a quiver <laughs> or or half of that um okay dave Popo. um this is another question about vertical groups steve he says how do you decipher vertical groups as to whether the cause is knock height blade angle or blade thickness 
This is on groups at 30 plus yards. So this is very similar Mm -hmm. to the uh, question that we got from Mike. Yeah, and there's really no way to decipher it without trying something different on one of those components. Yeah, but just one. Yeah, one at a time. So you'll you'll know if you have a blade issue, if it's too stiff or there's a lot of contact, you'll hear it. That's one. Um, You know, if a blade is too soft, you, you may or may not hear it. It's just a matter of weeding those things out one at a time with, with the steps we made above cam timing is pretty crucial. I mean, creep tuning, maybe that's something I need to cover really quickly. Creep tuning is make a normal, you know, best way to do it. Set up a a one inch strip of paper or strip of tape horizontally and shoot a good strong shot at that till you're sighted and hit in the middle. How far away? 20 yards is fine. 30 yards is great. Um, 50 yards if you can do it. It's like a strip of black tape on a white piece of paper, for yeah, example, something that you can clearly see. Yep. And you've got to be pretty honest thinking, okay, I broke that shot in the middle or I broke that shot low. So you got to be able to call your shots, whatever distance you can call your shots. Then try to make one where you're not quite pulled all the way into the wall. And then one where you're pulled as hard as you can into the wall. And you're going to see some vertical spread, which you can minimize with cam timing by altering cam timing one way or the other. Now, it depends on the bow you're shooting as well. There's a lot of components to this. The cam system on the bow, for instance. Yep. All right. Um, Let's see here. Our friend in the state that is high in the middle and round on both ends, Matt Zolman. Knock indexing before fletching. An absolute, a recommendation, or which? Ohio. A recommendation, a uh, absolute, or witchcraft? If yes, but not done, what are the drawbacks? Well... Matt, you've heard me say this before. If if you've got to knock index your arrows, there's some kind of flaw in the arrow, and you're compensating for that. Yeah, now, if you do it before fletching, I uh, presume through shooting a bear shaft and then clocking the thing, then your odds of putting the fletch where you need it are higher than potentially having it fall between fletches mm-hmm. um, on whatever arrow you're shooting and i would say that probably if you're if you're going to be that exacting you might as well do it before you fletch yeah if you've got the time if you've got the you know paper rack and inclination right go do it Um, but you know fletching makes up for a multitude of sins and and it's only 120 degrees spread you know you can rotate to that's if there's a sweet spot on your arrow if there is a high side it's probably fairly uh wide you know the the result you'll get yeah you could probably turn to uh, the next vein over and be could fine. be as much as ninety of one hundred twenty of those degrees. Right. All right. So um, worry about it if you have the time. Don't if you don't. Yeah. If you want to do it, by all means, it doesn't hurt. And I I don't think it's a complete waste of time. Just don't think it's always. Necessary. It's a complete waste of time if you're doing it on an aluminum arrow, an eastern one. Anyway. Yeah, I'd feel pretty good about the aluminum being good all the way around. And most X tens and Pro Tours and product of that. You know, I mean, just actually quite a lot of our stuff doesn't have the need for this. But, you know, some people are, are going to want to do it. So, right. good question. George Clark. Good job, Steve, on the Reading shoot. Can you tell me a good arrow for outdoor 3D? Superdrive 23. That's yeah. what we built it for. Yeah. All right. That's it. Mike Anderson, you've already heard from. That's Steve's dad. And finally, Sam is asking what sight and scope were you using? You already mentioned the lens. Yeah, so I was using a Shibuya sight, Shibuya 29 millimeter scope. Uh, uh, 29, I really like that scope because 
even even at my draw length and bow speed, I still need to make sure I have clearance, right? So that small 29 millimeter scope, uh, one provides clearance, two, I can go to a little bit smaller peep size than I would say with a 35 millimeter scope and help clear up that image because I use a five powers 0.62 diopter lens and I don't want to use a clarifier. So smaller the peep, the, the clearer the image and that scope really works well with that. Do you Beyond think that, Sarah Lopez is going to show up in Shanghai with a uh, clarifier? Probably, yeah. <sighs> You'd think a lesson would have been learned by now. Some I, Always I rains in Shanghai. Seems to, yeah. I don't remember it not raining there. I, yeah, last year we were lucky it rained on practice day. Okay. So I just didn't practice. Oh, there you go. <laughs> what uh, What else are you doing to get ready for the trip? Uh, laundry. <laughs> Coming off a long trek on the road. Right after Shanghai, you really don't have much turnaround time before Turkey, do you? Um, actually, I do. Yeah, I come home from Shanghai. Well, I go to Japan first, and then I come home from there. Well, that's what I was going to say. You've got yeah. a few extra days that you've got to burn before right. you come back. So Shanghai ends Sunday. I come back from Japan Wednesday. I turn around Thursday and go to Gator Cup for our uh, final world team trial and another USAT ranking event. And then I get home from that on a Tuesday and on Thursday night, I go to Seattle to drive to Darrington for USA field. Um, drive back to Seattle Monday morning and fly to Turkey that day. So like I said, not a whole lot of turnaround time. Yeah. Realistically there's not, I don't have, uh, I hadn't thought about all that. Could very well be our last podcast between now and then. Yeah, getting back from yeah. one of those. I've got Greg slated for one of the upcoming ones, so we'll we'll make we'll make try to make do without you if we have to. <laughs> Rather not, but uh, maybe we'll get you on the phone or something. That might that might be the way we have to do it while you're driving somewhere. Yeah, but um, yeah. So you know, as you are preparing both mentally and physically for this kind of thing, uh, are you doing anything different nutritionally or otherwise that would uh, be of note? Actually, yes. I'm trying to eat some yogurt, uh, get some some good stuff in my digestive system because you're still recovering from getting yeah, sick. And you start traveling a bunch of different places and drinking different water, and even if it's safe to drink, your stomach doesn't always agree with what's in it. And you start mixing a lot of that, and then things get bad. I mean, I remember a couple of years ago, I had I had been to like eight countries in a matter of five weeks or something. And I was pretty jacked up by the end of it. So try to try to just keep myself uh, from having to bend over any more trash cans. Maybe I've told you the story about Scott Kurtz. And Scott was a member of our 1980 Olympic team that didn't get to compete at the Moscow Olympics. I've not heard the story. So Scott habitually would go to a foreign country, open the tap, drink a glass of water, suffer the consequences, and he was fine after that. That was, was how he coped with things. Just deal with it. Just deal with it. Huh, I don't yeah. know if I like that idea one little bit. Yeah, I try to drink the bottled water. You know who our canary in the coal mine always has been for world archery events? Regarding? getting Who's going to get sick first? Oh, well. It's Dean Alberga. Oh, yeah. I have, I have uh, done a lot of miles for world archery back in the day. <laughs> I always travel with Imodium just in case. You know, Imodium is a anti... Uh, yeah, it, yeah. It, it plugs you up. Yeah, that's the idea. And I'm sure it's called <laughs> different things in different countries, which is why I clarified what it is. I've never needed it, but Dean has needed it 
like every single time I've traveled with him. I'm sure people are really loving hearing about digestive problems. Hey, that's an important aspect of archery. I'm sorry. Yeah. It, it, uh, and it you don't want digestive problems when you're on the line. No. And you've got a little bit of a history so far this year. So we're just going to. been good. Nope. We're just going to, you know, I'm just asking. So try to take care of myself. Before well, and, I... and I brought up nutrition. You're the one that brought up the whole rest of the story. Right. So, all right. And uh, you got Linda's uh, deal with the visa sorted out for China and all that? Working on it, yeah. All right. They don't should, make it easy. I should note, actually. You should buy one of those 10-year visas. I have one. Yeah. I should note this. At Reading, historically, if I'm doing well, I try not to change up anything. So this year, prior to day one, we went to uh, one of those pizza places. It's kind of like Subway. You go through and you create your own pizza. They cook it, yada, yada. And uh, shot well on day one. So Jeff Howard said, you know, maybe we should just go back. And I said, yeah, let's just go back. So we went there. I got the same pizza, same thing to drink, everything, same. Shot well on day two. So we had to go back again. I ate the same thing three three nights in a row. And you know, why wouldn't you? Yeah. And after the win, I said, let's get anything but pizza, which I've never said in my life and never again will say in my life. I had a uh, interesting time one time. I was in Shanghai, and and they went and brought pizza for the staff. And I opened it up, and I looked, and there's there's uh, calamari and mango on the pizza. Strange from from like a chain pizza place that's well known around the world, but it's they cater to local tastes. Yeah, right. I don't believe in fruit on pizza, so I didn't I didn't eat the mango. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that was that was interesting. Um, we are looking forward, of course, to having the uh, World Cup here. My understanding from Jenny Bailey, the organizer, is that the World Cup in Salt Lake City has a pretty solid turnout. But what is what was interesting to me was I was talking to our friends from Ian Seo. Looks like uh, we've dropped from about 120 to something on the order of 90 recurve registered shooters for Shanghai. So it looks like the Shanghai turnout might be a little lighter than it was last year. Kind of makes sense. Not an Olympic year. Yeah, it totally makes sense. Compound is up slightly. Doesn't Recurve is sense. down a bit. But by the time things get to Salt Lake City, apparently the uh, turnout will be substantial. Hmm. So over 600. So I, uh, I heard it was like 300. Well, we're counting support oh, staff and all yeah, that stuff, yeah, which yeah. is the standard number. Most World Cups are around that. So. You're right. Yep. So that's um, that's a pretty good turnout for uh, you know for a country that's tried to go out of its way not to make it friendly for people to come here <laughs> anymore. And then one more political thing I mentioned. Um, I, I feel like I think Paris has a better chance right now of winning than Los Angeles in for terms the, of the 2024. 2024 Olympics. That decision's in September. Uh, Paris has gone, and and whether you like him or don't like him or whatever you think about politics, I think Paris has, or I should say, France has elected somebody that's going to be more palatable to the people making that decision. Hmm. That's my impression. And there's a bet on this with some people who are in a much higher position than me involving, um, I think it's a, a, a beer. <laughs> oh, big bet. Yeah, there's no money involved. <laughs> <clears throat> so, yeah, that'll be interesting to see what happens. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. When does that actually get awarded? September. Okay, They're going to make that right decision up. in September. And, you know, uh, people in Los Angeles are pretty passionate about this thing. They really want to have the Olympics back again after uh, so many years away. And people in Paris are also passionate about it. Either place is very deserving. And that's why the IOC is said to be considering the idea of naming both the 2024 and the 2028 winner from those two. Hmm. 
And it'll be interesting to see how that would work. That would be cool. Could I, be. I mean, I think you you get a little further out than what they've normally done if you go to 2028, right? Lock yeah, yeah, way further. change. Yeah, yeah. They never um, have done that before. Yeah. You know what I would do if I were king for a day? I would pick four venues around the world, and I'd have it rotate among those those fixed venues around the world. One in the Americas, one in Asia, one in, I would say, Australia, and one in, uh, you know, maybe in Africa somewhere. And I would probably look at that as a, um, a better thing than, I guess you'd have to have five. You've got to have one in Europe. But you've got to have a reduction in the cost of this thing. It's getting to the point where, Arguably, it's out of hand. Oh, yeah, it's it's one hundred percent out of hand. I mean, the the real games are one of the cheapest ones in recent memory, right? Still very expensive. Yeah, and not going to help their economy. Fixed facilities means you don't have to go build a bunch of stadiums every time. You could have a dedicated staff that could travel around with the event instead of having to get people up to speed every time. Because, you know, every time that the Olympics are put on, they've got a whole new staff that they hire and mm-hmm. very little carryover from one to the other except in some of the operational areas like, oh, for example, sport presentation. Right. But, um, you know, I think that there's going to be a change. I, I just This is me personally speaking. It's got to be a change because you can't keep going like this. It's uh, it, it does seem like they're often operating by the skin of their teeth. You know, with regards to venue setup and decoration. That's not an exaggeration. Like that. You got to see it firsthand, but, yep. you know, I've been to six Olympic Games and it's it's like that in four of the six that I've been to, including the Atlanta Games. You know, we were working mm-hmm. out of tents in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I mean, there was stuff going up the night before in Athens and there was stuff going up the night before. I think Sydney's the only one that really had it all put together besides Beijing. Sydney and mm-hmm. Beijing had it all sussed. Barcelona didn't, Atlanta didn't, you know, Athens did not, and uh, and London did probably, you know, and maybe it's because of proximity time-wise. Best one was London. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. So, I guess we'll see what happens. But I, you know, I would like to, um, I'd like to see what happens in the future. Save ten years down the road. I will bet sooner or later they're going to have to have fixed venues for this thing. Yeah, sooner or later. You know, maybe something. Well, we saw what happened with the Winter Olympics. Nobody wanted to take it, and and that's a fifth the size of the Summer Games. Yeah, and I doubt that'll happen with the Summer Games, but it might get to a point where it's not that nobody wants to take it, but it's the same small number of cities that are capable, and it makes sense for them to take it going into a rotation like what you mentioned. All right. Any other thoughts before we uh, close up for the day? Mm, no. Well, then I guess it's time for... End of show. Let's make archery great again.